0: Player 1, welcome to the Gaming History Club. My name is Gabby.
1: Hello, and my name is JP. Thank you for tuning in, Player 1. I hope you've stashed your coins for our very first episode, The History of the Arcade. So without further ado, let's kick straight into it.
0: excited for this episode because obviously I've been with you, JP, throughout the entirety of your research journey, actually. And yeah, I'm just really excited to start the Gaming History School today.
1: Great. Tell me about it. I'm so excited. There has been a lot of research. I basically have like a conspiracy theorist pinboard up on my wall with different threads connecting all the different dots in history. But first of all, a little disclaimer. So, we're going to be going back in time quite far. We need to put things into context and, you know, uh, explain to you guys just what happened to actually bring the first arcade machines about. So when we talk about early video game history, that actually is all of the video games before they were available to the public commercially. So like people like you and me, we would have never played some of these games in the early history of video games. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be touching upon that period of time just as much as is necessary, but no more than that. If you guys want to know about the early video game history, reach out to us and let us know, because it's a topic that we would definitely love to cover in future. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So a lot of our modern technologies were developed in the prelude during and after the Second World War. So it should come to no surprise that this is where we start our story. Although some of these technologies started to be conceptualized before the Second World War, it's the military funding during the war that actually really got these projects off the ground. So Gabby, do you want to tell us about some of the technologies that came out of the Second World War?
0: Yeah, certainly. Um, Flu vaccines, penicillin, antibiotics basically, because I believe even cuts and scrapes could cause deadly infections before this exists. Certainly. Yeah, jet engines, blood plasma transfusion, radar, electronic computers, which is a big deal, ah. obviously, and the big thing, which is the atomic bomb.
1: Ooh, well, talking about atomic bombs, player one, let me introduce to you our first video game hero that we will be talking about today. Mr. William Higginbotham, born in 1910. And he liked to go by the name of Willie, so we will be referring to him as Willie as well. So, Willie was a member of the Manhattan Project. If you need a refresher on the Manhattan Project, the Manhattan Project is basically the project that gave us the atomic bomb. Willie actually worked at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, having started there in 1943, where he headed the Electronics Group, So his team was actually responsible for creating the bomb's ignition mechanism as well as some measuring instruments for the device. So let us skip forward a little bit to 1958, where he was the head of the instrumentation division at Brookhaven National Laboratory. They focused on peaceful uses of atomic power.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Go on, Willy. Once a year, this government research facility actually held an exhibition for the public. So we're thinking high school students, college students, general public. uh, They were bringing them in for an exhibition. So as you can imagine, for the traditional kind of uses an exhibition has, showcasing and showing off modern technology to the public. I mean, people did not own computers yet and probably didn't know much about computers at the time. So they were holding an exhibition once per year and in 1958... Willie decided that he wanted to make something a little bit more engaging, a little bit more interactive. The way that he said it was that he wanted something with quote unquote action. Willie decided to make an interactive display to entertain the visitors. While reading the instruction manual for one of Brookhaven's computers, a Donner Model 30 analog computer. By the way, Donner means thunder in German. I wonder if that's related.
0: Does that actually mean? Donner kebab means thunder kebab?
1: No, 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 because... It has nothing to do with no, that. No, because because okay. in Germany we, we'd say döner, not yeah. donner. So it's different. But well, over, okay. over it's here it's donner kebab, but let's get food out the way. We're talking video games, right?
0: Not food. Okay. No.
1: So, he learned that the Donner Model 30, he learned that the computer could calculate ballistic missile trajectories or... bouncing ball with wind resistance and he's decided to use this to form the foundation of his game
0: wow isn't that actually really interesting he saw this computer and decided to understand more about what it can do the first thing is yeah this computer can definitely calculate ballistic missile trajectories yes and then on the other hand oh and bouncing balls by the way with wind resistance yes fancy
1: I told you he was a genius.
0: He was, definitely. Yes, this is really interesting.
1: He later recalled his intentions were that, quote-unquote, it might liven up the place to have a game that people could play and which could convey the message that our scientific endeavors have relevance for society. I love how he accomplished that by making a video game.
0: I know, and thinking about it, how he was working for the Manhattan Project and talking about video games how actually atomic bomb relate to video games crazy that's just crazy so yes yeah loving this so far
1: it feels really relevant right now in the zeitgeist because oppenheimer um at the time of recording is just being released in cinema so when i did my research and uh found out that wow okay so there's an atomic uh connection here atomic
0: um, connection yeah man. i like that <laughs>
1: So he created a game called Tennis for Two on an oscilloscope and without getting too in depth into what an oscilloscope is. If you've ever seen like wavelengths, frequencies of electricity Mm -hmm. on a display, that was most likely on an oscilloscope. So we're talking about a laser inside of this small-ish machine about the size of a TV. Mm -hmm. This laser is shooting super fast at the screen to, to draw lines. Right. So we're not talking about ATV with pixels where tiny little squares like individually pop on and off. You know, it's just a laser moving at extremely fast speeds. He created that on an oscilloscope and this game is credited with being one of the first video games. But like I alluded to earlier, um, there are different definitions to video games mm-hmm. and we do not want to get too much into whether this is truly the first video game or not. Like I said, you want to hear about that? Let us know.
0: Yeah, I think it really depends on how you define the first video games. And yeah, that's another yeah. rabbit hole to get like, into. <laughs>
1: this is this is what I'm talking about in episode zero. You need some real philosophy to get down into the nitty-gritty of video games. Oh yeah, so, asking
0: for definition.
1: <laughs> yeah, like a true philosopher. So uh, let's explain Tennis for Two a little bit. So I'm sure a lot of people might be thinking, is this, is this like Pong then? And... It kind of is, but it isn't at the same time. So it has the same kind of viewpoint experience. So you're looking at the side view of a tennis court. So you're looking at the side view, but there is no paddles. Uh, it is a two-player game, however. Uh, the way it works is that like you have a uh, turning knob or a dial and a button. And the button would hit the ball back at the other side of the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dial, so if you turn it up, you would have a high, slow trajectory for the ball to, uh, yeah, hit the ball like high. Or if you turn it down, then you'll get like a really low slam hit, basically, at uh, the other player.
0: But I think the interesting thing is there there are no paddles visible on the screen, and no. that's I when we talked previously when doing the research about tennis for two, that was the most difficult thing for me to imagine. Yeah, how there is no paddle. How am I supposed to hit the button? knowing when I looked up actually... videos
1: of the gameplay and I was sort of a little confused as well so I looked up an emulator online just to like play the game myself so basically I explained the dial but when you when you press that button as long as the ball is on your side of the court then it doesn't matter if it just barely came past the net like you, you could press the button and it would return the ball immediately ah, um, if okay. you wait really long then you could shoot it back you know like quite from quite far back um if you don't do it in time then obviously balls lost and like yeah um don't think it kept score or anything like that nothing fancy no sounds it's just an oscilloscope so this was some real hacking on their behalf to be honest because this was not the purpose of this machine whatsoever yeah and that was tennis for two this was actually so popular that they had it in for like another following few years at the exhibition the very next year they actually added two different gravity levels that you could pick from as well. So you could choose to have the moon's gravity level applied and also Jupiter's gravity level applied to Fancy. the game. Yes. And this is on oscilloscope. You know what I mean? So yeah, that, that was amazing. Uh, when I when I found that out, I was I was very impressed. Yeah. <laughs> so Gabi, uh, I found this excerpt uh, from a short interview with Willy. Do you want to read it out for us?
0: Yeah, so he recalled in 1983, the instruction book that came with the computer described how to plot trajectories and bouncing shapes for research. I thought, hell, this would make a good game. It took me four hours to design one and a technician a couple of weeks to put it together. Everybody stood in line to play at the open house. The other exhibits were pretty static obviously the game seemed to me sort of an obvious thing even if i had wanted to patent it the game would have belonged to the government
1: yeah that's right so he did work he, he was an employee of a laboratory he was using laboratory equipment so this is something we will be going back uh, to a little bit later in this episode by the way this technician really drew the short stick didn't he um so it took Willy four hours to design the game. And then the technician a couple of weeks to put it together. I, d- I don't know who I should give more credit to making this game now. <laughs> the
0: idea came from Willy, though.
1: Yeah, okay, but... Uh,
0: yeah, the technician got two weeks to do it. So. Okay,
1: okay. <laughs> so uh, let's skip forward a little bit to 1962. And let me introduce to you our second video game hero that we will be uh, discovering more about today. His name is Steve Russell also known as Slug. Really cool nickname.
0: I know, I like that.
1: So Slug was born in 1937 and he worked at the MIT uh, and together with the Tech Model Railroad Club, a club whose members shared a passion to find out how things worked and then to master them. What does that actually mean? Well, basically, guys, these were some of the very first hackers that were about back in a small programming community in the early 60s. We can actually see how that actually worked uh, as part of our story talking about video games. So first of all, the game that they created, they called it Space War with an exclamation mark. Space War. Space War. They used a PDP-1 computer which weighed 730 kilos and costing $120,000. So if you want to adjust that for inflation, I don't suggest you do. But if you did want to, you'll find out that that's actually like $1.2 million in today's money. This computer was also very important for the creation of hacker culture. And I'll explain why that actually is. So at the time, the programming community is quite small. And in true hacker ethics and spirit, if you had a program, so Steve Russell's Spacewall, for example... If someone asks you and like, hey, can I have this this programming code? You just give it to them and say, here you go, please. And, you know, um, let go me and know. Go enjoy. Yeah. yeah. Let me know what you find out. How can you make it better? What can you add to it? We often think of hackers these days as like criminals, basically. Scam artists, con artists, you know, nefarious affairs. This is not the kind of hacking we're talking about. This is actually like really positive.
0: Yeah, and I guess because of the small programming community and also... The high computing cost that you mentioned before, it must have not been that feasible to commercialize space war.
1: Absolutely not. No, of course not. I mean, it would be a hard sell, wouldn't it? Would you like this one point two million dollar machine um, weighing yeah, you're in? Being asked now. <laughs> yeah, seven hundred thirty <laughs> kilos. Uh, but you can get people to put a quarter in it.
0: Um. Yeah. yeah. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Totally. The game's code was freely shared to other university campuses. This is actually. Where some people might consider this another candidate for the first video game ever. So this is the game where people think, you know, it was made on one computer and then moved on to another computer. And so it was played on different computers, basically. People think that might be the first time that ever happened.
0: Mm, Yeah, I wish it's more like that nowadays in a way of the culture. Like people have a game and they can just share it with people because... Games are expensive nowadays. Well,
1: they can technically do that, but let's not get into that.
0: <laughs> Something we shouldn't talk about here, I think.
1: Gabby, so do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about the gameplay in Space War?
0: Yeah, so the game features two player-controlled spaceships. Um, one is the needle, the other one is the wedge. And they will engage in a dogfight while maneuvering in the gravity well of a star. So imagine that similar to some kind of a black hole. Yes, but it's a star. Of, yeah, that's true, but it, it's a star. <laughs> it's located in the middle of the screen. Both ships are controlled by human players. Each ship has limited weaponry and fuel for maneuvering, and the ships remain in motion even when the player is not accelerating. Flying near the star provides a gravity assist. And that was actually a common tactic because they will have like a speed boost when you're going closer towards the gravity well or the black hole shape. Yeah, they're actually
1: constantly slowly being dragged into that well. So they have to make sure to thrust away from it.
0: Yeah, ships are destroyed when they collide with the torpedo, the star or each other. At any time, the player can engage a hyperspace feature, which is basically like a panic button when you press it you will be placed in a random place on the screen. And I'm talking about random. You can be placed in the middle of the gravity well and just end the game, basically.
1: In later iterations of the game, they actually increase the chances of that happening as well, just to, like, uh, I don't know, like, add a little bit of extra Like, that's spruce. not
0: difficult enough. I know, but right? okay. Yeah,
1: <laughs> panic button, yeah. I mean, so fascinating how complex this game actually is. So, again, you got... Multiplayer, You got this gravity system. Mm-hmm. You're thrusting forward away from the gravity well, but also trying to maneuver your ship to aim at the other player, mm-hmm. shoot a button. And then you got like this kind of wild card thing going on as well with the hyperspace feature. This brings me back a little bit to the hacker culture as well, because that gravity well was actually added by someone else. So that was not put in by Slug originally. Oh.
0: Interesting. yeah that
1: was one of the hackers actually of the game who added that feature and they adopted that actually because it was so popular modders yeah absolutely yeah Modding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so player one now that we've introduced Wooly's tennis for two and also slug's space war we can properly understand the inspiration and struggle to make video games available to the public so just to recap Willie struggled with the fact that he was making a game on laboratories equipment. Therefore, he wasn't allowed to patent it. It's technically government property. Mm -hmm. And Sluck struggled with the fact that he was making this on computers that were inside of universities, weighing in 730 kilos and costing $1.2 million. So as far as them two people were concerned, although beautiful in nature, This is not something that can be shared to the wide public unless they come to an exhibition to try it out. So along comes our third video game hero Nolan Bushnell, born in 1943. Bushnell enrolled at the Utah State University in 1961 to study engineering. And he worked part-time at amusement parks, and he had a curiosity of how the games actually operated and how they worked. I mean, he was an engineer, or studying to be an engineer at the time. He graduated in 1964 with a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, and during his studies... He was introduced to Space War, quite naturally. I mean, he's doing electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. He's hanging around universities, the only place where video games currently exist on Earth.
0: Yeah, and work in an amusement park because he has interest in games too, basically an arcade machine at that time.
1: Absolutely. Mm. So naturally, he developed an interest into making arcade machines and put them in amusement parks. But of course, he's still struggling with the same problems that everyone else is having basically how how am i going to make this commercially viable how am i going to propose this to a company to produce these arcade machines and keep the cost down somehow at some point around this time he finds out about a computer that's currently being advertised called the general data nova why were computers called such cool things back then by the way
0: i know yeah pdp1 and then general data nova yeah space wall uh, space War, yes. And yeah. then now, well, Space War is not a computer. It's no, right? yeah, that's true. Okay, but now we have Windows. Apple. Apple. Yeah. How, how underwhelming is that? I know. Yeah, let's make door.
1: <laughs> yes. So he saw Nat for the General Data Nova and he believed that he could program Space War on it. After graduating, he worked for a company called Ampex and at Ampex, he had an office friend called Ted Dabney. They both agreed, let's try to work on a prototype together. Unfortunately, they did struggle though to make that work and keep the costs down as well. So they did give up for a little while, but then had an idea to try and make their own parts, like custom hardware, in order to reduce the reduction price. And this worked, although it did compromise on some of the gameplay, unfortunately. So it was no longer a multiplayer game. It was now one human-controlled ship Mm -hmm. versus two computer-controlled ships. Mm -hmm. Also, they couldn't incorporate the star's gravity well, unfortunately. So compromises had to be made, but they did get a prototype to work. They went back to Ampex, their employer, and pitched the idea to them. Unfortunately... Ampex wasn't interested oh. and so video games never came to be and that is the end of our story.
0: Oh okay see you next episode. We're, mm. we're not going to talk about video games then.
1: Fortunately enough Nolan woke up one day and had a terrible toothache. He goes to the dentist with a toothache and I don't know how this will have worked being on the local anesthesia and all but somehow he managed to have a conversation about his sorrows with his dentist explaining to him Just the trouble he's going through making his video game happen. So his dentist suggests to him to talk to one of his other patients who worked for a company called Nutting Associates who then agreed to produce the arcade machine for him. And so they were able to make a space war inspired game which they called Computer Space.
0: Yes, and this is another one, actually, that is a very strong contender to be called the first video game.
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because now, if you want to define it by commercial availability, then yeah, this might be another contender, to be fair. Again, different episode, guys. Let us know if you want to hear about that. Yeah, so here we are, Player One. It's 1971, almost a decade after Space War was first programmed at the MIT by our good friend Slug. To set the scene, 1971 guys, Roy Tomlinson sends the very first email, which he just wrote into QWERTYOP, uh, the first row off the keyboard. What else happened in 1971,
0: Gabby? Walt Disney World opened in Florida, and then Starbucks opened in Seattle, and the first arcade machine was released.
1: Computer space, that's right. What an exciting year. So Computer Space was released, and the arcade machine cabinet, by the way, looks absolutely amazing. It's really colorful. There are different coloring schemes. They have, like, glitter on it. The shape itself is kind of like a curvy cube kind of shape. Beautiful. Yeah, it looks great. Uh, I definitely suggest you take a look online of what they look like. It looks like something out of Star Trek. It was released, but unfortunately, it didn't have quite the massive runaway success that Nolan and Ted and Nutting Associates we're actually hoping for. To kind of give some numbers, by 1976 it was thought that they sold between 1,300 and 1,500 units but a hit arcade game back in 1971 would sell around 2,000 units but a handful would reach up to 10,000 right. It was thought at the time that this might be due to the fact that you're releasing arcade machine cabinets now where normal well, quote-unquote normal people, like, hang out at. So we're not talking about universities, laboratories, students. Uh, we're, We're talking about just your regular person who, up until that time, may have never used a computer before, never mind controlling something happening on a screen in real time. And if we remember just how impressed we were about space war, computer space was actually probably rather intimidating for people. I mean, you, you got like clockwise, anti-clockwise button to to turn the ship. Uh, you got a shoot button and you got a thrust button. And people didn't even play tennis for two yet. And that's why they believed that maybe it wasn't such a big hit that they were hoping for. Which leads us into the game that Nolan and Ted would work on next and release in 1972. With the help of a third programmer called Alan Alcorn. And the game that they released is of course Pong. Pong was released in 1972 and that was the massive runaway success that they were really hoping for. Whilst computer space established the fact that arcade machines could be successful. Pong was the proof, the solid fact proof that like yes this is something that we can make a lot of money out of. Now Pong They actually founded Atari. So, all of their games now, made by Nolan, Ted, and Alan, were now under the Atari banner. Bushnell estimated that a game earned around $35 to $40 per day. But again, you need to adjust that for inflation. So, that is a lot of money. They were thinking probably around for each arcade cabinet, they were being played between 140 and 160 times per day. So, this provided Atari with a steady source of income they sold more than 8,000 units by 1974. The estimated revenue, this time for inflation, is around $67 million.
0: And how much was it for someone to be able to play Pong? Like, how much did they have to it cost insert? A, yeah. It cost a quarter, so a 25 cents.
1: Wow. Yeah. Pong was actually so successful that they were able to sell the console at like three times the production price. Ah. Wow. Yeah. So I can really kind of understand where they were going with this. They took space war as their first idea just because of how impressive it actually is. Mm-hmm. But obviously struggling keeping the costs down, etc. So the next idea, Pong, much simpler kind of premise, I imagine to program as well. I think that really helped them in the yeah business commercial sense then. So next, let's talk a little bit about a slightly different area of video game history, home video game consoles. So in the same year, Magnavox actually made the very first video game home console called the Magnavox Odyssey. Mm -hmm. And they actually had their own version of Tennis for Two made by Woolly back in 1958. And they called their version Table Tennis for
0: Two. Oh, I'm disappointed. I thought they're going to call it Tennis for Two too.
1: I yeah. mean, that would have been a little bit funnier. Oh, yeah. i yeah, think to so say too. the least. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, Magnavox actually ended up suing Atari for copyright infringement, right? In 1976, they settled out of court with Atari because Atari did not feel like funding that much money into battling the legal case. The Magnavox Odyssey version of uh, Tennis for Two, or as they call it, Table Tennis for Two. Pong was by far the better version, to be fair. Pong, for example, the paddles were like lengths. And Magnavox, they were like squares, basically, just big squares. And also, they didn't return the ball at different angles, depending on where you receive it on your paddle, mm. if that makes sense. It would always just go back the exact same route it came from, oh, but yeah. opposite. That doesn't yeah.
0: sound as fun as Pong.
1: No, exactly. Pong had sounds. Beep. Beep. Yes and it also kept score for you and Magnavox did not do these things. There's a reason that they called the market Hong clones and not table tennis for two clones yeah, yeah there's a reason for that yeah
0: also the name would be too long to say table tennis for two clones <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that's really interesting because I believe Magnavox actually managed to get around 100 million dollar in total yeah were... by suing all of these other companies yeah can you imagine if Willie actually managed to patent back in 1958. well they
1: actually brought them into some of the court cases ah. some of the court hearings yeah it's a bit of a shame really because let's think about the hacker culture going on a little bit as well and like some of these competitors like com- competition is good right because some of them were making like punk clones and was just the exact same thing but others they had their own spin on it so i believe some of them you could rotate the paddle ever so slightly Mm -hmm. they had four player versions of pong so while it's still all kind of like the same game and the same concept and it's not going anywhere really it's still competition and um atari was not disheartened by this however and they would continue to make even better and more creative games moving forward to keep ahead of the pack So at this stage, I would just like to talk a little bit about the culture and how video games were being perceived at the time in Mm -hmm. the arcades. I think it's interesting to think of where we're actually finding these arcade machines. These are places like bars, lounges, places where you would also find pinball quite naturally, right?
0: So basically not children-friendly, not family-friendly kind of places. No,
1: whatsoever. Actually, quite on the contrary, places where, you know, there's... Booze being served uh you might consider them to be quite seedy places actually as mm-hmm. a matter of fact quote-unquote for amusement only right video games didn't really help that reputation either so to mention some examples of the sorts of games that were coming out at the time so we have gotcha from 1973 made by atari Gary, do you want to explain uh gotcha to us
0: Yeah, I think I can really understand why this was becoming a little bit of controversy at that time.
1: This is probably the very first video game controversy ever. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, in this game, basically two players will be moving through like a changing maze with one player trying to catch the other. Each game lasts a set amount of time. And what made this controversial? Because initially the joystick was designed to be encased in a pink domes that was meant to represent women's breasts. This design later being changed quite quickly, I believe.
1: Yeah, they changed tune pretty quickly, I think. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> but the design already inspired the advertising flyers on where there is a man chasing a woman wearing a nightdress and the game is basically behind the man. The game is pictured behind yeah. the man. Yeah. But yeah, as we mentioned before, it was changed to regular joystick not long after the release. It did
1: not leave much of an impression, this game. It aroused little more than controversy, uh, you might say. So to mention some other examples, we've got Gunfight in the US that came out in 1975, released in the US by Midway in Japan. It was actually called Western Gun and released by Taito. Uh, That was the first game to depict human versus human combat. Mm. It was also, interestingly... The first game, the first arcade game, to use microprocessors instead of transistor to transistor logic. But I'm not going to dwell too much into what that actually means for now. We got Heavyweight Champ from 1976, released by Sega, and that was the first game to feature hunter hunt combat. Mm. Yeah. And lastly, another great example, probably the best example, just to give you a sense of the culture at the time and how video games really weren't helping themselves at this stage whatsoever. Death Race 1976. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Death Race, Gabby? Uh
0: Yeah, well, I guess the game was a little bit controversial and actually inviting a lot of newspapers and civic organizations to attack the game itself because it was centered around killing humanoid figures in the cabinet itself did try to make it like goblin looking
1: um, figures
0: but obviously because of the technological limit at that time on the screen it will just look like one head two hands two legs fat stickman fat stickman yeah to make matters a little bit worse as the players hit them they will scream are making this squealing noise and replaced on screen by tombstones. And that's controversial at that time.
1: So player one, this is where we will stop for today, unfortunately. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the first part of our journey through the history of the arcade. Next time we will be concluding our journey. We will look into the explosive boom of the golden age, how video game designers established a family-friendly, women-friendly culture and perception of video games, the downfall of the arcade, and its inevitable revival.
0: New episodes of Gaming History Club are released every second Wednesday, so make sure you subscribe and follow us on our social media. Say hi to us by visiting our website, gaminghistory.club. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear. So player one, see you next time.
1: See you next time.